Hello. 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 Hello and welcome to Caged In. This is another one of our bonus Caged In conversations where I sit down and speak to somebody who has worked with Nicolas Cage. On this episode, I get someone who's not worked with him, not once, not twice, but three times. I get to speak to editor Brett W. Buckman, who's worked with Nicolas Cage on Mandy, Colour Out of Space, and Pig, which is released today, if you're listening to this day of release, in the US, and is released in the UK on the 20th of August. So it is very much in our crosshairs, and it's a fantastic film. It's not like it's up there, not only being my favourite Nicolas Cage film of the year, possibly my favourite film of the year. It's a beautiful, poetic film that has this fantastic, fascinating meta-narrative that I'll get into later on down the podcast when I eventually cover this film in all its gory details. But for now... Yeah, listen to this conversation with Brett Buckman. It's an amazing conversation. We get into some stuff that um, I've never heard before in regards to some of these films. Not 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 that any of it's libelous or anything like that. Just, yeah, it's, it's, Brett was amazingly generous with his time and just the stories he told me. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Um, there's... There's mention of Daniel Noah in this conversation, who we, well, we, uh, you, you may remember from a previous Cage Thing conversation, but yeah, if 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 you're if this is your first time listening, do be sure to check out that because there's a lot of crossover. Daniel is a producer on both Mandy and Colour Out of Space, so that may pique your interests, but. There's plenty of fantastic caged in conversations and I'll talk about a few in the outro. I imagine a lot of you listening to this might already be regular listeners. So yeah, drop in at the end if you want to get some recommendations of other great conversations I've had with some fantastic people. But until then, enjoy this conversation with Brett W. Buckman. One last thing before you enjoy this week's episode. There are some spoilers for Pig, but me and Brett do signpost them before we get into them. So it shouldn't ruin the episode. And it's this is kind of done in a kind of career chronological order. So it will go Mandy, Colour Up Space, and then Pig. So there's plenty of listen to to listen to before you duck out of that part i totally understand if you want to go into that film as fresh as possible and i would very much recommend it so yeah if you're gonna not listen to the all of this episode i totally understand it but there is plenty to enjoy in the meantime i have the pleasure of being joined by an editor producer actor and somebody who's possibly looked at nick cage's face for more hours than even me. Brett Buckman. How are you, Brett? 
Hi, man. I am doing very well. It's such a such a joy to be here. <laughs> um, how, like, yeah. How how is it like? Kind of, um, you've got Pig coming out, uh, which I would have talked about in the intro. Um, and I think the first question I kind of want to ask you is, um, you're like the through line, basically, of what I'm calling like the Nikonaissance. Like, if you kind of look at these, like, there's these three big Nick Cage movies where it's like the the early 2010s everybody are like he's fallen off he's fallen off and then there's these ones that seeing him like claw back into uh popular favor and you, you seem to be involved in all three of them how how does that feel uh that's really cool it's <laughs> i i always do other to express it uh it, it's a combination of being in the right place at the right time um and uh it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure to work with someone like Nick, you know, time and time again. And you never really know what he's going to do. Yeah. You, the amount of precision this guy has, he, I, I will say he's apps. He's never boring to work with. He's never boring to watch. Uh, and it's, it's so far, it's been the distinction of my, like the distinction of my career so far. <laughs> you know, I'm 19 features in, but um, hoping I can do more with him. Perfect. Well, before we kind of get into like a Nick Cage rabbit hole too deep, um, where did you like start off as as an editor? Where did like what 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 made you think this is what I want to do? Yeah, uh, I had started way back in high school. Uh, we have this thing you you do your senior year of high school called the senior project, which is you know this twenty hour you have to put 20 hours into this product for this career fair you make. And I thought I was going down a medicine path. I thought I wanted to kind of follow into becoming a doctor, but I was playing high school football at the time. And an idea, a friend had me over one day and he showed me this wrestling highlight video that someone had made in his school district. And it had had interviews with the team. It had had these little vignettes. It had had footage throughout the year. And it just kind of had like this 15, the fact that, you know, a 17 year old had made this 15 to 20 minute thing. And this is, mind you, this is like way back in 2003 <laughs> when edit cameras and editing equipment like weren't really everywhere. And it got me really excited about the possibility of me doing something like that for the team I was playing on. Uh, and I was able to kind of set up this documentary of sorts um and so i got all the appropriate permission from my coach and from uh was able to borrow a video camera and started shooting everything behind the scenes uh, some practice footage some just random interactions throughout the fall the spring of my junior year going into summer camp um during games i would obtain footage from uh, people up in the stands from the high school video production squad down in the field. And after months and months of doing this, had tons of footage. We ended up winning league that year for the first <laughs> time in like, you know, years and years. And uh, sat down in front of Final Cut Pro 5, which I'd never really used before, and kind of taught myself how to edit on, on this senior project thing. Um, Long story short, at the end of, came in every single day at the end of school, edited until like seven or eight every single night. And then when the movie was done, uh, had a little mini premiere in the school's Amazing. auditorium in March. 
Uh, probably one of the more influential dates of my entire life. <laughs> Came into school the next day, sat in front of my uh, EMAC where I'd edited this thing in the video production lab and just wished I had something else to work on, something, <laughs> else, to, something else to do. And that was kind of the genesis of it all. Uh, from there, um, I ended up switching what I wanted to do. Um, I went to a little state school called Western Washington University up in Bellingham, Washington, got really involved in their uh, a college TV program where I did a lot of sketch comedy. I was writing, I was acting, editing, directing. And after a few years of that, realizing that, yes, this is something I really want to be serious about, uh, made the decision to start looking into film school. Wanted, I wanted a, uh, a very specific traditional kind of academic environment to keep on with this because Western really wasn't much, it didn't really have much in the way of yeah, a yeah. practical film program. And uh, so it kind of came down between, that's kind of how I ended up over at AFI. And after spending two and a half years at the program there and you know, meeting friends, all hopefully after the rest of my life and mm -hmm. having some, I graduated that and I spotted around Los Angeles for two years, kind of doing any single like little odd job I could. Um, I was doing music videos. I was doing uh, sketches for Funny or Die. I was doing uh, things on spec. Um, and I eventually got an email one night um, from a staff member at AFI. Um, and occasionally they'll send out blasts mm -hmm. of emails being like, hey, you know, so-and-so looking for an editor starts tomorrow. And I had my resume ready. I had my website ready. and this email blast comes out saying low budget action or movie looking for an editor starts next week. Um, sent in my resume, sent in everything, get a phone call the next day saying, Hey, like your stuff. Come, you come on, come over to Burbank, meet us on set and, you know, do an interview. Amazing. And uh, that ended up being Rays. Um, that was my first feature. Mm -hmm. uh, I ended up meeting um, a, a very special person in my life who really opened the door for my entire career, um, this guy named Josh Waller, who was the director on Rays, um, to this day, still one of my best friends. And that was the connection that led me into SpectreVision. And yeah. that, yeah, that I've done nine films with the, the partners over SpectreVision now. Um, and it's kind of where everything started for me. So that, that, that relationship you have with SpectreVision, it's kind of like, when it comes to like pictures like Mandy, how, how did that come about? Did they kind of go like, we trust you from what you've done with like cooties and stuff like that. You said in total, you've made nine features with them. How did the Mandy job come about? Well, um, I, I had a really fortunate position with the partners um, where we had Mandy was, I think our eighth film we'd done together. Mm -hmm. uh, Ray's, Ray's mechanic Max Rose, uh, Camino Bitch. Uh, yeah, it was like six or seven. Um, and so usually I was the first one to get a script from, like they weren't even really talking to a lot of other editors at that time. It was like, like Brett is up for this. If Brett passes, we'll go to somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, hey, we need to maintain that this is someone the director wants to work with in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's not like I just get the job. It's like, <laughs> we want to put, we want to put Brett up for this. Let's have Brett meet with the director. Let's sure Brett and the director get along. So that's how, you know, bitch came about. That's how, 
um, cooties came about, you know, meeting with John and Carrie. That's how, you know, every single other relationship with a director I've had that Spectre is done. It's I, I meet with a director, make sure that we're on the same page about the movie, that we'll get the chemistry is there. We're going to get along. Yeah. What, what, um, what is your kind of ethos as to like what the editor's job is and how it like services the film? Because what I've noticed from watching a lot of your films this week is that you don't like there's obviously there's not a it's not like a a distinct brett buckman style as it were do you know what i mean like do you yeah do you... and i think that's how it should be um i my ethos I, it's just a it's to support the director and to find the best movie with the production team um spectre vision in particular are producers that get they have a particular brand. They have a movie they they set out to make. You know, that's the reason the company was formed in the first place. Um, they want to put certain movies out into the world. And so they are involved, I think, from a, a, a very big creative standpoint, but at the appropriate time. You know, we have our several weeks that you know, the director and I will work together. Um, we present an early cut if we're trying to submit to Sundance or to another festival, get preliminary notes on that. And then eventually the producers are invited then to participate in the editing process. I've always saw myself as there for the director, mm -hmm. there to make sure I get on the same page with the director, to make sure that what I am working on is the best movie in their head. And mind you, that sometimes that means challenging the director. Sometimes that means positioning other options. Sometimes that means, you know, playfully being a devil's advocate. Um, you know, Mandy's a good reference where, you know, I you know, sometimes I would, you know, question, you know, pitch things to Panos, you know, whether it was, whether it was scene compression or whether it was alternative options. And sometimes they just be like, no, that's not what I want. You know, I, I want to keep this scene the way it is, or I want to make this scene, you know, longer. It has to have a very particular rhythm, but I, I want to make sure that I am, I'm welcomed by the director to be there, that I am entrusted with them, that I am working for them, and that I'm also working collaboratively with the producers when they come on board. Um, I, uh, and so I don't think it's really appropriate for an editor to have a particular style yeah, yeah. because every single film requires a different, uh, is a different creative beast. You know, it's mm -hmm. a different, has different requirements, different genres require different tactics. Um, you know, I just hope I can make the best movie possible with the team. You know, and that comes down to you know, a lot of it comes down to my early cuts with sensibilities and yeah. taste and rhythm and, you know, working with the material that is given to me by the production um, and on some movies, uh, fortunately that, that sometimes that aligns really quickly. Um, like on color out of space, for instance, um, there's a lot of scenes that appear in the final film, um, more or less identical to the assembly cut, like more or less oh, yeah. identical to the first edit. So yeah, back to, back to Mandy, how did that, how did that project come about? Like, were they like, how does it tend to come about? Is it like the <laughs> yeah. film's finished and then like they go, Hey man, you come and edit this or is it kind of the, what, what stage do they get you on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was on set for another movie with them. Um, we were shooting this movie called bitch and mm -hmm. I had found out hanging out on set, grabbing footage one night that they had locked in cage. Um, and it was a, a big deal. <laughs> and they were going <laughs> to go, go to the press with it pretty soon. And, and mind you, I don't hear a lot about, you know, things in development until they're like green, but they're ready to go because, you know, spectral have, you know, any, any, any number of things in development at any given time. Yeah. Um, but this was a big deal for them. They're like, this is going to be one of the, probably the most high profile project we've done. Um, now, now the cage is involved. It, it, I, was, I was being told about Panos. 
And then the project kind of went away for a few months, um, at least from my perspective. I went on to do another movie, um, and uh, it was ended up being really serious. They got greenlit. They had the money. They were going over to Belgium to start um, location scouting and shooting. And then I heard uh, through them that it would likely have to be a Belgium editor. Um, for tax reasons, they had a certain tax requirement that they needed to, for the rebate to spend a certain amount of money in Europe. Uh, and so it looked like this wouldn't really, probably wouldn't happen for me, which mm-hmm. sucked. Because um, it's everything they had told me from that initial pitch, Nick Cage, surreal lo- love story, barbarian movie set in the <laughs> 80s, sounded like exactly my type of jam. Uh and then it all kind of came, once it came together for me, it happened incredibly fast. Um, I was on a commercial shoot on the East Coast. So this one particular morning, I was, I had received the script. I had read the script a few a few weeks here previous, just out of curiosity from them. And uh, I was on a, like I said, I was on a commercial shoot in Baltimore. We were on a field shooting a, uh, an Under Armour commercial with a cross-country group. <laughs> and I was left behind um, to like guard everybody's personal, like all the bags from like all of the, all the high schoolers and the, like Brett, watch the batteries sit here. Don't move. <laughs> this is what so I'm for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's what I was doing. Um, and then I get a text and it's, uh, it's Josh Waller, um, you know, the head of, head of production inspector. And he was mm-hmm. like out, out there working with them. Uh, and he's like, can you Skype with Panos in five minutes? Whoa. And I'm in the middle of nowhere in a field in Baltimore. <laughs> and I look, I have like three bars. I'm like 10% on my phone. I was like, yes, fuck it. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, and sure enough, like they, he Skypes me in from his um, apartment in Belgium. And we just started talking about the movie, um, the, you know, exchange some pleasantries, talked about uh what they've been doing over there. Um, they had been shooting for about, I think two or three weeks by this point. And my phone dies like right in the <laughs> middle of this interview. Uh, and for like, fortunately I had like charged my backup battery the next day. So I run over my backpack, grab my battery pack out, plug it in, wait like two minutes, boots back up, call them <laughs> right back. And, uh, we just continued talking about the movie. Um, I remember in particular, it really reminded me a lot of, uh, Holy Mountain and El Topo, some yeah. Jodorowsky stuff. And, one of the things that I, I think panelists really responded to was how I talked about, I love the, the devolution of the character yeah. of red as the film progresses um, in, in a way, the entire texture of the movie, the visual style, the, the sounds, cause there's a lot of also sound stuff written into the script as well. How all of that kind of evolves and changes and as red steadily becomes less and less human, the mm-hmm. more he gets closer to this goal of committing of the ultimate revenge. And uh, Panos really responded well to that. And he was like, if you can come out to set to, you know, do a, a pleasantry and meet and greet, you're on board. Mm-hmm. And this has to be the absolute biggest coincidence in my entire life. <laughs> because on this commercial shoot, it was a traveling shoot. We'd been in Baltimore. We were had just been in Washington, D.C. And I shit you not, in three days, we were flying out to Berlin. <laughs> and... and uh like i've never been to berlin before my entire life up until this point they're like yes if you can fly out to meet us you know by the end of the week you got the job and like well buddy you should say that (laughs) so i yeah landed in berlin hopped the plane over the brussels um met everybody you know exchanged pleasantries and they gave me a a shuttle drive and that was that and i started 
Amazing. So, like, in regards to Panos and, and Mandy, like, with the pacing of that film, how, like, kind of important was that? Because it's, it's got this, like, I, I always look at it, it's this film of, like, two perfect halves, and it's kind of like you've got that beautiful centerpiece, which is yeah. the, the scene. And I'm sure if I say that, uh, everybody knows exactly the scene I'm talking <laughs> about in regards to Mandy. But, like, how important was it to Panos about, like, the kind of the pacing and that kind of, like, the the kind of broken up into, like, the title yeah. cards and that? How early was that? In, was that in the script or is that did that come later? Yeah, yeah. Um, also, the pacing. Uh, uh, extremely important. Mm -hmm. um, that Panos is a type of filmmaker that has... a the way a film moves, mm -hmm. the rhythm of a movie is just as important as who was cast yeah. to him. Like it's, he has a very particular, he's attuned to a very particular frequency with the rhythm of a movie. And so more often than not, when I would show him an assembly of the scene, he'd be like, I have like two notes and it needs to be 20% longer. Like <laughs> I, I want those, I want those, these lulls. I want these super slow transitions I, I, the way this rhythmically, the heartbeat of this movie is so important and so crucial to the way he looks at things. Um, and, and so that was in the film's DNA from the get go. Like it's as important to him as, you know, Johan's score. Like it is, it, it is everything to him. Um, and we got to a point where, you know, this first edit of the movie, I think was 2.45, maybe close to three hours. Um and we definitely lost some scenes to get it down in time. But I mean, there was a cut of the movie that Panis was ready to lock at two hours and 15 minutes. And this was like when we were in, in Brussels in the last few weeks of the edit, he was like, I would like to lock right now. And we, the, the producers and the team are like, please like let, let us show you a cut that's at two hours at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that ended up more or less kind of being the cut that exists today. Um, but uh, so it, it's extremely important to him. Um, and that being said, the two halves, um, that you speak of were always that way. Yeah. Um, he always had a very particular way that he wanted us to see Mandy. He, he talks, he talked to me a lot about how much more he associated and, um, uh, related to Mandy than red. Like he always found Mandy much more of an interesting character. And when red does become your protagonist in the second half, according to Panos, that's just an, he's just an extension of Mandy at that point. Like he is, he, he always found them kind of as like this singular character almost. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the title cards, um, yeah, the that Mandy card in the middle was always where it was supposed to be. Yeah. Or not exactly. It used to happen like right after, I think he, uh, we, we had tried a few different edits where we had moved it around a little bit. I think initially in like the script, it was written into the script before he goes to Carruthers, before he makes the beast, before he makes the ax. Yeah. Uh, and then when we got to that, we're like, well, you know, if we put it, you know, after, after he visits Carruthers where the momentum's warming up, we're learning about the black skulls, we're learning about the adversaries. And then we put it right after the, the ax being made and you put it right before he's driving down the road in his pickup, like the momentum and the surge of energy that's going to build is, is going to be huge. So that's ultimately where we ended up putting it. Um, but the other two cards, um, children of the, the children of the new dawn card was written in to the script as well. Yeah. And then it, I think it was, I can't remember whose idea it was. It might've been mine um, to, to 
two chapter cards felt like it was incomplete, like yeah. at least to me. I felt like we needed a third one. And so then we kind of conceived this idea of having three three chapters of the movies, mm-hmm. essentially. So, you know, there's a lot of you know press out there and people say it has two chapters. I always envision this having three. Um, you have the Shadow Mountains, your uh, first chapter of the movie. Um, you have Children of the New Dawn when you meet the cult and you get the sense of adversary um, into their lives. And then, you know, when it becomes Red Story, the Mandy title card. What what I find really fascinating about Mandy is that kind of like there's like this weird blurring between between what is like uh, a f- like almost like visual effects and what is editing. Like I guess a scene that really sticks out to me is is that scene where Jeremiah and Mandy's faces meld together. Is that is that like yeah? Is that a visual effect or is that like kind of editing trickery? It's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it starts out as a, it starts out as editing trickery. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It, uh, but there's a lot of embellishments that have been done through that particular scene, um, which, uh, so that face molding shot in particular, you know, that's, they shot that to be designed where it would yeah. kind of meld and flush back and forth. And we had an early version of that where you apply these really long cross dissolves just to kind of see that it's working. You work the timing out and you get the, uh, the shots and the faces where you want them to be. And then eventually we kicked that off to our visual effects team um, who you know, really like tracked Andrea's face and her pupils in particular. So they would match up perfectly with Linus's. Um, but there's a lot of other stuff in that scene, which is editing trickery. Um, you know, for instance, I, I think every single shot in that sequence is at 95% speed or 90% speed. I can't remember which one in particular. Um, well, we slow every, we slowed every single shot down later on post, and then those uh, uh, the mo- the movement trails, those blue yeah, yeah. elements that are left behind when people's move, uh, that is something that um, Panos conceived, and uh, we ended up doing in the last few weeks of the edit. Amazing. So I, I guess yeah, we need to we need to speak about the scene, right? The the kind of what I call like the earned Nick Cage freakout in in the bathroom, that kind of like explosion of grief and it's like I, mean, I think panos has sp- spoke about it that there's there's that scene's got a, a mistake in it right like there's kind of yeah can you can you speak to that a bit more yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> so the the mistake to speak of um so we have we have two takes of this mm-hmm. i think um i was going to go with the first take Panos and Waller told me I was crazy. It has to be take two. <laughs> um, and that's the film that that's the the reason I was like, well, take two hasn't aired it. And mind you, <laughs> the, the, I was also the that, that's a never mind. Um, so <laughs> take two. Uh, there is an instance where he's going into his uh vodka stash, he pulls out the bottle and he's throwing things around out of this drawer, and he throws a towel that lands on the dolly track. Uh, nobody noticed because I mean, you have Nick Cage screaming his heart out and giving this performance that no one clocks this thing. And so when he sits on the toilet and he begins to break down or be, the performance comes much more inside and much more interior, the camera pushes forward and hits that towel that's on the do- dolly rack. And so <laughs> if you are familiar with the film, you'll notice that the camera really isn't sure what to do at that moment. Uh, And that's because we can't fucking move any closer because there's a, (laughs) so what they were doing was pulling the dolly back in the middle of the take. Someone rushed in, grabbed this towel off the dolly, the dolly, and they continued the take and pushed back in. 
Um, uh, but you know, Panos is that kind of director who's like, I don't give a fuck. Like it's it, it's wonderful. Like it's yeah, it, he, it adds to the kind of like the anger and the kind of like do you know I mean the, the the franticness of Red at that moment. So like it's it's those beautiful mistakes that kind of make that. And I imagine like it would take a lot out of an actor to kind of give that like i'd imagine cage wouldn't be doing five six takes of that anyway right no typically not um i mean on mandy in particular it's a bit different for color and pig Mm -hmm. but for mandy in particular it was really rare if we did above three takes for nick Mm -hmm. you know he was just it was a combination of you know technically the belgium crew was amazing um very little resets needed for any kind of thing like that but you know panos had a really good indication of what he wanted on the day him and Nick were aligned quite well in terms of what mm-hmm. was, what was going yeah. to happen. And so, you know, usually they would get it in one or two takes and move on. Um, and same with Andrea for that matter too. Um, to this day, it's probably the film I have the least amount of coverage for that I've ever done. <laughs> um, and, and that just, I think goes to show, you know, when, when you know what you want <laughs> and it's as, uh, because they they had a respectable budget they could have kept on shooting but they know exactly what they want and panelist is also that director who you know relishes in things being a bit gritty he, he loves things being a bit dirty i mean i remember during the edit he would talk about how one of the reasons he doesn't really like a lot of studio films is because they feel too polished they feel too inauthentic they feel too artificial and there's no sense of a, a human element to it yeah well there's a there's a beautiful like grit and a grain to Mandy that kind of like it it almost feels like a film that like was made in the eighties somewhat that like it's kind of like just been like the dust has been blown off and like you've like someone's unearthed, do you know what I mean? Like found it in the back of a video store and gone like, Oh, how how come nobody's ever talk, talked about this? And it's like I don't know, it's like a fascinating artifact of like and yeah, like feels feel otherworldly as well. He would be so happy to hear you say that. <laughs> I, I don't know who said it. Somebody said like an amazing thing once that like, it feels like a movie that's about like the roadies of like a metal band. When you see those metal bands who have like, like that kind of, I don't know, like fat fantasy imagery on the side of their mm. like tour vans. Like Red is almost like one of those roadies who works on, uh, like, is in that kind of metal world, and it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's the movie is such an interesting combination of Panos's influences and things he saw when he was a kid. I mean, from I remember him talking a lot about you know going, of course, going into you know, video rental places and seeing the horror art on movies he wasn't allowed to rent. Yeah. I remember there's an, another story he tells where he was in Mexico at, um, and he saw this Mexican biker pull up. And just like do donuts in his front yard and how like this clad image of this guy in leather, you know, most punk thing you can imagine (laughs) and driving away really ingrained with him. Um, So, yeah, I mean, this it's all a very interesting combination. And of course, you talk about Children of the New Dawn and it's totally influenced by 80s doom metal. I mean, we tempt a lot of them. We tempt a lot of the movie with some really dark stuff and then there's also a, a big love like we use a lot of brian may for, from queen um we used a lot of flash gordon in that temp we used uh a fair amount of um van halen as well um some like some of the instrumental stuff um so it's a very interesting 
mixture of all these different influences for this time and place in the world. And I, I don't know if I'll have the joy of working on something that eclectic and diverse and rich in terms of like its influences ever again, I you know by barbarian movies as well. <laughs> like he, you know, he talks about Conan a lot, you know, during the editing process of this film, but it's, it's a film that proudly wears its influences on its sleeve, whether it's, you know, um, uh, a classic eighties animation or whether it's Jodorowsky or whether it is, uh, there, there, there's something that always stands out to me there. And, and I'm not sure if it's like, from Panos or it's just a coincidence but there seems to be like a uh, a phantasm 2 like reference in it like even the way that like red is dressed like in the kind of utility vest like type thing and um like especially the chainsaw fight because i think like if, if i remember rightly like a character reggie ends up like with a chainsaw at the end of phantasm 2 so like yeah. don coscarelli and it it very much fits that kind of 80s movie store aesthetic like it's one oh, of those man. kind of odd films phantasm hellraiser yeah. uh, there's a friday the 13th for friday the 13th reference in there i mm -hmm. mean this is all you know panelists teenage years <laughs> coming out you know a, kind of a, a a petri dish of all of his influences coming together that's all of that stuff is in there so in regards to like the films you work on how often do directors tend to like you you always hear these stories that they say to like actors and stuff like that like here's like a list of movies to kind of check out this is do you know what I mean like this is what the vibe mm -hmm. I'm going for whatever do you ever get like a kind of anything like that or are you kind of I don't want I don't want to know about like what's kind of influenced you kind of um uh, sometimes it I, I I usually I ask first and foremost just to if they have any particular influences they want me to take a look at um. Like, uh, I did a movie just recently called Werewolves Within, <laughs> where we, um, the director really wanted to kind of capture this particular tone that you could kind of attribute or call a mix of a great but classic Amblin, but also um, uh, some like early Coen brothers as well. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the eclectic rich of like all these different influences, you know, whether it comes down to a lot of the the tempo and the camera trickery of Edgar Wright movies, like Hot Fuzz in particular, or whether it kind of has a lot of this uh, charm and uh, earnest quality of like an Amblin movie, or if it has kind of the quirk and the um, eclecticness and kind of the character oddities that a Coen brothers might have or that are well known for, you know, particularly like Raising Arizona or some of the earlier movies. And so for that movie, that was a film that he's like, yeah, check up these films. And I watched a lot of those movies, you know, getting to work on that movie, you know, to get an idea for his taste, to get an idea of the sensibilities, you know, what, what's the tone, what's the vibe, what's the rhythm you're going for. Um, uh, other films, not so much. You know, Pig in particular was a movie that uh, Michael had, I think, one or two references he wanted me to look at. But that's a movie when you saw the footage, you were very aware of what it was. Mm -hmm. And same with, Ma same with Mandy. Like Mandy was one of those things where you, I think it was my first day. And I, I think my first scene, I the first scene I ever worked on was actually a scene that got cut from the film. Um, but it was really clear, at least to me early on, what this was. You know, this was something I could like tap into all that scary shit I saw on cable TV in my teenage years. That was like these old scuzzy 1970s, early 1980s movies that, 
you know, felt gritty and just the texture of them felt so raw mm-hmm. and uh, the, the, just the way it looked kind of frightened you a little bit, yeah. you know, whether it was the fog and the darkness and the wetness and the, the grain, it just felt destroyed and, you know, mix that with the performances and mix that with Cage's performance and the script, which was very evocative and very, very confident in what it was, you know, to a point where like, you know, you could read it and be like, this, this makes no sense. Like, <laughs> but, you know, fortunately, like I read it and I was like, I know exactly what this is, mm-hmm. or I, I think I know exactly what this is. Um, so, but, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I could, I'm going to move on from Mandy. Don't worry, Brett, but there's obviously one, one thing like I feel like I have to mention, which is the, the Johan Johansson score. And when, when did that like for you, like what, did did you get to, were you privy to like any of the score whilst you're editing or did it come after you'd kind of submitted your edit? No, we Johan was one of the first crew members that was hired on the movie. Amazing. Like I think after it was be, well before even me. Um we Waller had worked with him on mechanic uh right before um Johan had come out with prisoners. Mm-hmm. Uh and so we already he already had that connection before Johan essentially kind of blew up. Um but Johan reached out to Spectre when he found out about Mandy and color out of space in particular, like Johan really wanted to do color um, back when uh, the two of these projects had been announced. Um, and I, I think, I mean, hopefully I'm, I'm right about this, but he was slated to like be the composer for color as well. Um, hopefully I'm correct about that. I don't want the press coming on Spectre <laughs> coming at me about that. Um, but uh, so when I had started the director's cut with Panos up in Vancouver, uh, Johan started up by saying there's three demos. Um, one demo doesn't appear in the movie at all. Um, it, it, it took a much more kind of queen Brian May approach with it. Um, one movie, one demo ended up kind of becoming the template for a motif that would occur later in the movie. Um, I think if, if you're familiar with the soundtrack, it was called dive bomb blues or mm-hmm. that was the eventual name of it uh and then another piece he recorded um went into the movie as is panelists and i were like this is perfect um and it, and it was the piece of music that plays when mandy finds the dead deer yeah um like i think that has been maybe changed subtly since that first demo but otherwise you know, we threw that in the scene we looked at it together and i think panelists and i both made like kind of a mutual decision like don't touch it it's perfect like Everything about this is the movie. And so from that point moving forward, like throughout the rest of the weeks of the director's cut in Vancouver to the point where we started doing the producer's cut over in Belgium, Johan wanted to say this stuff almost on a daily basis. Um, we were a small movie, so we didn't really have a music editor kind of going in tandem. You know, usually you'd have a music editor kind of digesting this material, working with the stems, yeah. putting something in the picture, but that was all me. And so there's a good wealth of material that Johan recorded that never made it into the movie that, you know, was awesome and incredible, but is I'm hoping will be released one day yeah. because he wrote so much for this movie that the public is, has not heard. It's not aware of. Um, and uh, you know, panels, the typical day would like would be panels and I listening to these demos and Johan would write some of the stuff without any, sometimes without any clear indication of where it was going to go. Um, and so it kind of came down to panels and I being like, where do we put in this track? Where do we put in this? Can we let's put it up against picture here? Um, I, one of the ones in particular that comes to mind is uh, this big 80s gated drum track that eventually became 
the music when Red's driving from the chemist up yeah. until the children's uh, uh, the children's range. That, I think that was initially written without a clear indication of where it was going to go. <laughs> um, and it was, it's only kind of in hindsight, I, I look at it right now and I realize like how special that was and how unique and beautiful these tracks were because you're in post on a movie every single day. It's, you know, 12 hours of stuff and stuff and notes and revisions and music. Okay, cool. Where do we, let's try it, throw it in. And not only in hindsight, you're like that one of the better movie scores I've ever heard in my entire life. (laughs) And I wish I had more of an opportunity, you know, to really appreciate that when you're working on this. Um, and then, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's a soundtrack I listen to. And hopefully, like you say, we get to hear that kind of those other tracks, e- even if it's in that, uh, what, t- two hours, 15 cut that, 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 that Panos <laughs> met one day might, might, might get his way in release. Um, so let's talk about, uh, color out of space. How did, yeah. were you brought on earlier to that or, or was it, was it a, a similar situation? Uh, I had heard about color because they had announced to their, collaboration with Richard on that years, years mm-hmm. before. I mean, yeah. this was even before I think they'd announced Mandy. Um, so it was certainly on my radar. I'd expressed, I think, interest to either Daniel or Lisa or like some, someone there. I'd expressed interest about it. And they're like, yeah, don't worry about it. You're, you'll be fine. <laughs> uh, and we were in post on Daniel isn't real um, when I found out that uh, Color was indeed greenlit. And I think Daniel asked me as he was leaving the edit one day, he's like, you're doing color, right? And I'm like, I know, I wasn't even aware you're doing color. Like, that's that's a go. And he's like, oh, yeah, we'll set up a meeting with Richard. It'll be great. And uh, I think two weeks later, I was talking with Richard on Skype and kind of the same thing with Mandy. Just talked about how the script, what it reminded me of, um, my personal connection to it, how I felt about it. Um, I, I think we ended up talking a lot, Richard and I ended up talking a lot about the creature itself, the color, um, you know, the entire uh, the alienness of it. You know, what does something sound like when it doesn't have vocal cords? How does it move? What is something, this is, how do you do the story right? It's supposed to be something that doesn't exist on the color spectrum. Humans aren't supposed to see it. How do you make that into something that is a visual medium, a visual and a sonic medium? Like, how do you pay that it's due? Um, and so I I had a little bit of a hiatus in between Daniel Isn't Real, where I ended up doing Vigil, and then I jumped right on the color um, after that and went over to Portugal to shoot it. So, how yeah, how, how was that experience in Portugal? I know that um, Daniel Noah said to me, like, Sintra just seems to be this kind of magical place. He said, like, even I think there's a shot of a ring around the moon, and he's like, you... that, that's not a VFX. Like, that is, no. that is real. Like, that's the kind of... The, the 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 mysticism and magic that's in the air in that place i wish more people knew that color of this was shot in Sintra because you should go it is <laughs> one of my favorite places I, I i've ever been and it was such such a nice experience shooting there and being there for the duration of that um we were set up in uh for for the unaware uh, Sintra is a is a very old town um, just outside of Lisbon, about half an hour. Uh, it's kind of up in the hills, this little small mountain area. Um, so it's very moist. It, it feels very much like New England or even the Pacific Northwest because yeah. it has a lot of fog, has a lot of trees, big forests, and there's a lot of estates. There's a lot of old houses there from the Portuguese royalty and the aristocrats that... And it's well known now for being the source of uh, the home of many palaces, uh, in addition to a Turkish castle at the, on top <laughs> of a hill. Um, 
And the uh, a typical day would be, you know, us getting into one of the production vans inside of Sintra at this beautiful little hotel, driving up these very wavy zigzag streets up the mountain, um, getting out. And uh, the main gardener house where we shot the majority of the movie is all one location. I, yeah. I think there were only maybe three or four other major locations that we ended up using, but almost everything was also like shot in this one spot. But base camp um, was set up in a building right next to the barn. So if you're familiar with color, if you know kind of the, the rough geography of the gardener house on a hill, the well, and then the barn where the alpacas are, base camp was in a, a giant house, literally right, just right to the barn. So <laughs> like if the camera was to like pivot and you know, turn just like 15 degrees to the right, you see this big yellow structure, which is where we had our production offices, where we had our, our meals, where I was based. Um so I would show up, you know, have a quick breakfast, go upstairs um, into this old mansion, I think built probably in the late 1700s, 1800s, definitely had that vibe, um, and begin working on the previous day with my assistant. Um, sometimes they would be shooting in the barn directly below us. Um, I remember in particular the day where Cage comes in and shoots the alpacas. Mm-hmm. We have to do, you know, 20 takes of that, you know, three different angles, uh, Know, a close up, some inserts, so a wide you know, over shoulders. And so, you know, every five or 10 minutes, I would hear that dependable cage scream just downstairs <laughs> as I was editing because he's, you know, only, you know, he's literally only like 20 feet away from you as they're shooting this. And so you're trying to be quiet. And then, you know, of course, you hear bang, ah, <laughs> bang, ah. You're like, yeah, just keep on working. This will happen for another two hours. <laughs> um, and uh, what was a really good thing about this is that. I could just throw a rough cut onto my phone um, and then go out to visit set and like show something to the producers or show something to uh, more often than not show something to Richard. Mm-hmm. And um, so I remember the day, like one of the days in particular, um, I was working on the finger chop scene and I had uh, uh, come up with the idea to like, uh, or the news to play a joke on Nathan. So I, I, like, I came up with this idea that like, as he's talking about, Oh yeah, I'm a, I, I appreciate a nice bourbon out of Texas. I came up with this idea to put like bourbon connoisseur at the bottom of the Chiron. <laughs> I was like, I'm so, so, so pr- happy with this. So proud of this. And I took it down and uh, Richard and Waller were hanging out and I showed them the, showed them the scene, like on my phone. And Richard's like, perfect. Great. Love it. <laughs> so what, what, what was the vibe like on sex? I know that uh, Cage has said that he was kind of channeling his dad, like in, in regards to that film, like was, was, was he very like, taken away like was he like kind of kept himself to himself or was he mingling with all of you having those meals around that table i mean cage is he is the kind of guy that he's he's a consummate profession Mm -hmm. professional he will show up he will clock in he's the most out of all the actors i've worked with i've done 19 features now he's the most gifted actor i've worked with like he's the way he can hit his marks the the technical precision of this guy Mm -hmm. i mean he's the kind of guy if you tell him not to blink for a minute it's yeah, it's super easy for him just not to stare ahead, not move, not play. <laughs> um, never forgets a line, never misses his mark. Um, and yet you're still super excited to see what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. Never boring, never boring to watch. Um, and so he, I mean, I don't really socialize with Nick, you know, during the production process of a movie. You no, know, he has his thing going. I have my thing yeah. going. And so he will. And there are some times where he won't even socialize with the other actors. I mean, there's 
when he was doing Mandy for in particular, I'm not going to go back to that movie, but like he, yeah. when him and Linus were, had scenes together, they would not interact at all. Like to kind of keep that relationship cold and like save it all for the camera. So on color, he was, I think a bit more social with the other actors, yeah. you know, um, I think Madeline and Brendan in particular. Um, but he, you know, he would show up, he would, you know, he would work, he would go back to his trailer for lunch, he would clock out, go back to the hotel, and then day and day and day again. Yes, he was chant that voice, the affectation he does, um the mutation that this alien organism yeah. does when it gets into you affects everybody else a little bit differently. And Age had come up with this idea in tandem with Richard to have him devolve a little bit um, into his father, yeah. into this kind of, uh, you know, arty narcissist, uh, judgmental type. And so that, you know, almost that voice, which a lot of people have incorrectly attributed to Trump, it's actually uh, his dad. It's him falling into yeah, yeah. um his real life dad, this voice that I used to hear, um, you know, this judgmental voice that, you know, you're not going to be good enough, Nathan, you're not going to be, et cetera. And he takes that on the more his character begins to devolve. It's a very specific choice he made as an actor with Richard. Um, and, you know, we work on crafting that. Um, there are, there's a lot more of that in the dailies. Um, there were some even freakouts that didn't make it in, into the movie. You know, there are some lines we lost here or there because, you know, you're crafting this performance. Um, and Cage, you know, being the actor that he is, he's always going to give you stuff that, you know, is surprising and stuff that is different. He's completely unafraid. And, you know, when you have a director like Richard who is willing to, you know, let Cage try a lot of stuff out, sometimes he goes really far. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, th I think, did Daniel talk to you about the, uh, the, the, nose clip or yeah, like the hairpin yeah. on the nose yeah yeah he yeah. said yeah he wanted the nose clip and daniel came up with, like gave me the best analogy i think i've ever heard for kind of cage's style of acting is he's like a it's like a garden hose that's like spraying water <laughs> and if a, if he's with a right director they know how to hold that hose and water their garden perfectly get exactly. those nice ripe tomatoes or if they <laughs> if the director's not up to it they kind of just let that hose go wild and cage will cage will run. That's with a, it. that's a perfect analogy. Like <laughs> uh, that's, that's great. Yeah. Um, and you know, so there's, there's a little bit of the directing that guard knows then, so to speak, you know, yeah. a lot of that's on set. Um, you know, I think out of like my three films of cage, I think he explored more stuff in color in terms of like his range of performance than Mandy and, and pig. Um, and, you know, Richard would then calibrate that performance and on set. But then, of course, we can do the edit and there's further calibration that we do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so a lot of, you know, although it makes sense, you know, in the context of that scene, you know, why, you know, Nathan would be evolving and going through these tandems. One of the things we kind of found in the context of like, you watch the scene, you edit the scene, you look at the dailies, you assemble it, you think this is great. And then you look at that scene in context and you're like, well, this just doesn't this heightened performance or the how heightened the performance is right now just doesn't feel in rhythmic tone with the rest of, of the surrounding scenes. I think we should take them down a little bit, you know, or this, this particular freak out, let's, you know, really pull this back and save it for 10 minutes later when the freak out is a bit more justified, yeah. you know? So for instance, um, you know, when he is uh, looking at the tomatoes and the tomatoes are all tasteless and he's like throwing them around, we have a lot more stuff of that. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot more stuff of him freaking out, but like, you know what? He freaks out the appropriate amount here. It's strange. Um, 
is uh, uh, Jolie, the um, actress working against him mm. in that scene, you know, is reacting in an appropriate way contextually, but we have to make it fit, you know, the other two scenes to make it feel like it's earned. But also, so, you know, four scenes later, after the organism has merged um, his wife and his son, that he freaks out in the car, that's the a really justified freak out yeah. in the same way where you have, um, you know, the, the vodka scene and Mandy, you, these things need to fit the story. They need to fit the, the, this anger, this you know burst of energy needs to fit the moment. It has to fit the, the, the character at this particular time. And sometimes that means refining and changing a little bit and you know, kind of a give and take. And it's a little bit of kind of a secret relationship that the editor and we have with the actor. You know, we, we may never interact on set, but Every single thing an actor does, an editor has looked at, they've touched, they've adjusted, they have manipulated. Um, and if we do our job right, you won't even know. Yeah. So one of the people I spoke to um, on this podcast about Car Out of Space is Dan Martin, who did the uh, effects on, on oh, this cool. film, like the creature design um, and stuff like that. So what was it like kind of editing together those scenes? Especially, I think one of the most frightening scenes in this film is... Um, <laughs> when Nathan is trying to shove his daughter into the attic with the kind of mother-son mutant hybrid like because obviously that 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 that's a practical effect right that's that's that that's a somewhat puppet and like somebody in a, in a suit yeah yeah it, it's grotesque <laughs> in a word <laughs> like uh he's doing he did a, a phenomenal job on that movie to a point where you know I would have to kind of take breaks looking at daily sometimes because I would feel a bit sickened. Um, <laughs> and mind you, that's also, you know, Julie Richardson, of course, you know, who's the actress underneath all this makeup and yeah. also Julian Hillard, you know, also, you know, pinned to her as well in mm -hmm. some of these scenes, you know, moaning and crying. And you can only look at that for so many hours. Yeah, yeah. An audience member is only looking at that for an hour 50 or however long the movie is, but you know, I would be looking at it for 10 hours a day sometimes. And you're like, I have to take a break from this <laughs> um, because, you know, they would just, you know, some of these scenes require 10, 15, 20 takes, um, and they're doing it, every, they're bringing it every single take. And in conjunction with the, pro the dance work on the prosthetics, like it's this, it, it, everything kind of has to sing together and everything has to work and everything has to kind of vibe. And so, you know, a scene like, you know, when Lavinia is thrown into the attic and mm -hmm. it slams the door and you have, you know, this creature running at you, you have to also kind of kind of put your imagination cap on because yeah. this puppet running at you also has like, you know, four or five guys on green poles, you know, guiding this thing around. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you have to kind of have that vision of like, what is this thing really going to look like when you remove a lot of the puppetry and you, what is that? You have to kind of envision that. And it even kind of came to a point in the edit where like Richard wasn't so sure on some of this stuff. Um, that I had included. I mean, there's one particular moment where at the very end of the movie um, where they bust in and the, um, uh, our monster has like full, had completed the evolution. Yeah. And there's a moment kind of uh, where they ward busts in the sheriff busts in and Jolie lifts her head and screams. And Richard was convinced that was never going to work. It was like, I just see the actor. I see the makeup. I see the effects. And that was like one of the times on the movie that I politely put my foot down as like hard as I could. <laughs> I was like, Richard, I will take it out if you really want. But like this, 
this will fucking like this will destroy. <laughs> like this is going to be so terrifying with the right sound effect, with the visual effect is done. Please let us like move forward with like this is a shop because I think you're like this will blow your fucking socks off. <laughs> and so it, it came up a few times where it's like I'm not so sure about the short and like please, please. <laughs> and he's and we got to a point where we had agreed to like make it a visual effect shot. You know, let's include it, let's send it off. And sure enough, we got it back. And I was very fortunate that I was proven right. A lot of times, I'm not. <laughs> very often, I am wrong um, in the editing process. At one point, I even propositioned cutting the Cheddar Goblin from Mandy, um, which I was very thankfully in hindsight overruled. Um, and I look back on that. I'm like, how? Why are you saying this in public? People will never hire you if you say you propose cutting Cheddar. Uh, oh yeah, that's that, that's got a bit. That's got to be a big revenue stream for Legion, M, right? <laughs> oh my god, the way that that character is taken off. Um, but you know, yeah, back to color. I mean, you're looking at these, you know, prosthetics and. As cool as they are, you're looking at the actor underneath the prosthetics. Yeah. And I think the thing that I, my favorite thing that about the work that was done was that you never lose sight of the actor's performance underneath. The Jolie and Julian um, are, their full performance is allowed to breathe and come forward, even when they're wearing, you know, uh, they're caked on all this latex and makeup. And I think they did a phenomenal job of that. So in regards to something like color that's got a lot of, um, I guess, a lot of like visual effects, especially when we get to that like final act and there's all that kind of crazy stuff that the human mind can't comprehend that we see and stuff like that. Is, there, is it like an element of like that stuff is happening like uh, nice and early on? So like when it comes to it, you can edit it. Like how do you, do you kind of, or just wait till you get that st like, I don't know, hard drive dumped on you and you're like, well, let's edit this together in, in uh, the rest of the film. Yeah. It, um, that changes on a, like a case to case basis with your, with movies, you know, bigger budget movies, you know, uh, I may just be editing. I may just be working with the material I'm given. And sometimes these are conversations above my pay grade. And I, I, I just kind of work with what I'm given, you know, the visual effects are already in the pipeline. They prepared this stuff. Color was a different, situation though where you know we certainly had our visual effect this we had a visual effect supervisor on set um but it became evident that we weren't going far enough in the edit um with the amount of stuff the amount of surrealism the the, mm -hmm. the amount that the alien changes the fabric of your reality wasn't happening enough and so one of the things we started doing in the director's cut was augmenting the environment more. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the foliage changing to magenta, for instance, was something that we came up with in the edit. That was something that I had seen in look like I was going over some of the lookbooks. I was going over some early artwork and it had been referenced. But like I had no one had ever told me on set, hey, this is something we're going to do. Maybe it, it had been the intent to plan for it, but like it, if it had, it had never been like relegated <laughs> to editorial. And so I started trying out all these secondary color correction options in the Avid to like generally gradually shift this thing more into, into the magenta space to get a sense that this thing is a contaminated environment. You have your sonic elements, you have, uh, you know, this high frequency sound that's appearing at times to kind of suggest these things around you. But the, Gradual color change is something that we can, is something that we began to toy with and uh, be, uh, have temp versions of. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, freak out at the end, like the house imploding and like the the waves 
when you move a hand and you have that trail of motion that kind of sticks behind the flashing lights, the camera shake, that was something that was all stuff that I came up with something that I pitched mm-hmm. to Richard, something that Richard then was like, yeah, let's roll with it. Um, because Richard had never done a film with a lot of visual effects before. Yeah. And so this was kind of new territory for him where, you know, he, I think was just becoming to becoming aware of the powers that we kind of had at our disposal. Mm-hmm. Um, and mind you, you know, on other films, you know, adding new visual effects may be a no-go, you know, with the studio or the producers, but like I think Spectre and Richard both agreed this is something that needed to happen. And we ended up adding a lot of visual effects to kind of get across that sense of degradation that alien uh, you know coming into this environment and so um a lot of that was stuff that i ended up doing temp visual effects for you know spitting out a shot under after effects doing a very rudimentary version uh and then having that live in the avid for a few weeks mm-hmm. um until it eventually went over to our visual effect vendors and then the conversation becomes okay look at this very silly and rudimentary white blob that's moving from like <laughs> screen left to screen right. That's the timing we want to have. This is a kind of a keyframe for how fast this thing moves. You know, notice how one of the things that came up a lot with our you know, really experienced visual effect team um, was how often we wanted uh, errors, how often we wanted, you know, uh, imperfections in the image, um, which I think they were maybe a bit surprised at first to hear about, you know, because you spend all this money on a visual effects shop. They're like, well, why wouldn't you want to see the alien? (laughs) And then the argument becomes, well, because this is supposed to be an organism that doesn't, that should not exist. This thing is so powerful. This thing is so alien Mm -hmm. that you should be able to register it. So like, I remember in particular the, the actual merging scene where uh, Benny and Julian or Brendan and Julian run out of the barn. Julian, like Julie picks up, Julian and then the color overtakes both of them and they merge. You know, we had early iterations of that where, you know, it's just a magenta light. Yeah. And, you know, we had, you know, we had had a storyboard where there was going to be a bit more and we gradually kind of built up the energy, but it's like, this still isn't visceral. It should be horrifying and scary. And it never really worked until we got to a point where, when this thing overtakes them, it's just blinding strobe light. It's uh, you can't like we overexpose Jolie. We have all this energy, these flashing tendrils. And so it got us, it took a little bit of time, but when we got the visual effects team to see like this thing should be so bright, so overpowering that it blows out the camera, that it shakes the camera. Like you have to pretend this thing is a, uh, you know, a real object. If you were shooting it practically, that it would be like being next to a fusion reactor or it'd be like <laughs> being next to, um, you know, a bomb going off. Yeah, yeah. Like it has to distort the image. It has to like, you have to live, lean into those imperfections to make this thing feel real. And once we kind of nailed that in the edit from a temp visual effects standpoint, you know, getting those boards right, that it influenced everything we did later on. Amazing. Um, so again, this is a film that has another fantastic score by uh, Colin Stetson. When yeah. did, when did that, like come to you again was that was that a similar thing like it came in the edit or was it kind of you submitted your edit and then colin kind of scored to that we uh this was a bit of an unusual sit well not not necessarily unusual for this was different from mandy i should say where a lot of times colin was brought on later in the process um but you know sometimes what we do is we will spit out you know scenes or you know, small moments to a composer, and sometimes composers will bid on a movie by sending you back demos. Yeah. You know, on Cooties, for instance, we were in talks with a few different composers before Crane came aboard, and one of the 
things that affected that decision were watching demos of you know early scenes with a score behind them. So with Color Space, for instance, um, I, I think Colin he had known about this movie. He really wanted it. He started writing music. I, I think before we even formally engaged with him, mm-hmm. um, and so he was like, but he was petitioning really hard for this job, and we had received demos from him um, that were honestly very similar to the final score. Um, he had had a lot of these ideas to merge sound design and score mm-hmm. where the uh, identity of this color, the motif of the color would be almost like this coral reef, like these uh, really high frequency uh, static like particle sounds, which are actually, uh, it's, a, it's a coral reef um, in conjunction with a lot of other avant-garde elements in the score. Like, um, his elk calls in there. He has cranes. There's a lot of animal elements in this. And so it really came down to him and another artist. Um, then Daniel and I would be in the edit um, and, you know, looking at some of these things and it kind of became down to, you know, which person, which person is going to be. <laughs> and uh, the team eventually landed on Colin because we brought in his music. We put it up against the very end of the movie. Um, that scene where uh, Ward is up against the dam and he's looking out and he's giving that, you know, the, the famous H.P. Lovecraft, you know, final words of the sh- uh, short story. And we put up Colin's score against that, like an early iteration of that scene. And that's eventually what we ended up. That was kind of the clincher. That was the decision. Yeah. It's just, again, it's, it's, a, it's another perfect marriage. And yeah, Colin's, Colin's music's beautiful. I remember, I think I first heard about Colin from, of all places, Bad, Bad, Not Good. I think he features on their fourth album or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. saxophonist. Um, so let, let's talk about a project that, Day of release is released today, well, at least in the US, and it is Michael Sarnowski's pig. I'm looking for a truffle pig. Someone store. What are you thinking? I remember every meal, every person. You live your life for them, and they don't even see you. We don't get a lot of things to really care about. Who has my pig? So it's probably a good thing that I played the trailer just then, because it's kind of a question I've had, like, kind of uh, in the back of my mind is, obviously when you edit a film, I guess the trailer then is edited by, like, a marketing team at, like, the distribution company. So how does it feel for you as an editor? Like, do you ever feel like when you see, like, whether it's your film or other films, you're like, Oh, that's not how I would have done it. Like, take take Pig, for instance. When you saw the trailer, do you think it kind of gives set sets up the film that Pig very much is? Uh, that's a great question. Um, there are oftentimes I see early trailers that I despise um, that mm-hmm. I think don't capture the tone of the movie at yeah. all. Um, we had a uh, an early version of a trailer from Mandy when we were going to AFM that I think didn't capture the tone of the movie at all. It kind of leaned in and made it seem very silly and didn't capture the tone of it. Um, Pig, we had also seen a version of a trailer for AF, uh, I think AFM or a sales market that made it seem quite silly. Um, And the the creative team and I were like, this doesn't seem appropriate for this movie. And Michael, the director even, you know, drafted up a, a very politely 
reported memo was like, <laughs> we want something that's much, that leans away from the genre tropes because the audience is going to be assuming this is going to be John Wick with a pick. Like the, 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 on, on the page, you know, uh, the type of movies, a, a lot of movies that Nick puts out these days, you know, are going to put an audience in a position where they're going to assume it's a knockoff. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's uh, on paper, it's a silly premise. You know, it's a, a guy going into the city to rescue his truffle pig sounds silly. Um, but the film is not silly. It's a not, it's not a silly movie. Um, it is, I think, far more grounded than both Mandy and Color. Um, it is, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a drama, yeah. which um, is, I think, going to be a huge surprise to a lot of people. Um, uh, there are, I think, some surreal elements in there. There's some weirdness. There's, but I, I would never describe this film as a genre film to an audience, which is why, like, I get a big chuckle when I see you know, a genre, like genre size, like bloody disgusting, like, you know, putting out a thing for it. And I'm like, this, this has far more in common with like an A24 drama or yeah. a neon drama than Red Central or, or one of these things. Like there's, yeah. there's not, there's maybe one or two, like one or two moments of like, you know, fright in this, but like, there's no, almost no blood in this movie. There's nothing, I would quantify this as an action movie at all. <laughs> um, and so it's been such a, when you see early trailers sometimes to try and sell a movie like that, uh, it, it's a bit disheartening because you're like the thing that makes this film, one of the things that makes this film special is Cage's involvement. And also that this is a very different film than a lot of films he's been putting out recently. Yeah. Um, it, it's very much stands apart from like a lot of this other stuff. Um, and I think audiences are really curious to see a movie like that with Nicolas Cage showing everything he can do um, because this is, I think a far different performance than people are expecting him to give. You know, this is not a Nick Cage freak out movie. This is not a Nick Cage meme movie. Um, this is him tapping into something that I don't think people have seen since Joe or, or yeah. tapping into even something earlier than that. Like this is, uh, I didn't really know what to expect um, from him when, when I got my first day of dailies. Um, but I was extremely gratified and happy to see the decision that him and Michael chose with the character because it makes perfect sense and without giving in the spoilers like the way where he goes with it um it gives you this entire cathartic emotional ride yeah so I, I believe i heard in another interview um you were you were raised in rural washington right like kind of yes rural. i was yeah so was this film somewhat for you like like going home do you know what i mean like coming home because obviously this is set in portland uh yeah Oregon. like I'm, I'm, I'm getting i'm getting mixed up with but like do you know what i mean like that kind of raw yeah rural aspect just away from it from it from a town no it, like it does it it feels very similar to where i grew up um and even the film <laughs> points to like at the seattle portland rivalry at one point yeah <laughs> but um it's one of the things that reminds me so clearly is just like how dark everything is in the forest you go out in the pacific northwest forest in the fall or the spring, um, and you get an overcast day, it, it it is so dark and so dreary and wet, and it it's dripping with texture. And I think that's one of the really remarkable things about um, Pat's cinematography in this oh, movie is yeah. like how perfectly he captures that. It, it's you know it is uh, the texture of moss and how green and wet everything is. It just felt yeah very much like a trip home for me because that's where kind of my backyards. I, I count it like I kind of when I was watching it today I, I checked in at like 
I think I think I looked at the ticker and it was like we've gone six minutes in this film and there hasn't been like a single word spoken. Like again, like I, I, I don't want to give away too much because obviously yeah, it's been released day day and date of of the film. But again, is this a film where like pacing was very particular from Michael, or was it kind of like to get that to get that tone? Like, it feels like a very reflective film. Yeah. No, I mean, pacing was extremely important to Michael. Um, not not much as much to the extent as a director like Panos in particular. But, I mean, the first cut of Pig we had was close to three hours. Um, wow. Yeah, Pig, Pig was a movie that came down a lot in, in screen time. Um, the, the first cut was very big. We ended up losing um, a fair amount of scenes. I would probably say half a dozen scenes. And a lot of scenes have come down significantly in their final length from, you know, where they were written. Um, but we, we got into an interesting scenario where, you know, this first cut, you know, Michael would see, you know, these transitions and uh, kind of how I go about the early stage of the director's cut is that we go kind of on a chronological basis in a linear fashion, hitting, you know, scene one, scene two, scene three, and just allowing the director to work with me, get, get a sense of the material, put their finger on the pulse of the movie. And Michael's early ideas were to really slow everything down, yeah. you know, not completely dissimilar to Panos. And so we, his first director's cut, like that first director's rough that we had, you know, like three, four weeks after he started this cut was even longer. It was even longer than my assembly. And then we <laughs> ended up watching that down. We're like, this hour is three hours. This movie is three hours and 15 minutes. We wow. have to, let's, and that's, let's start looking at this thing now, maybe contextually. Let's think about like on a scene instead of like a scene by scene basis, let's think about like in sequences. So, you know, looking at uh, the first sequence of the movie, basically everything up until pig is abducted, treating that as, you know, one story thread, how much of this do we really need? How much can we compress? And when we got to that point, Michael was you know eager to try out different tempos, different rhythms, some alternative uh structural things we got to a point where i think we were into a week at the first cut we each other producers they had proposed doing some small restructuring in the beginning to make it seem like there are more there was like more than one story day occurring so in the early iteration of the cut that just starts off with you know cage and pig going into the woods finding the truffle a mirror coming and then they make a truffle and they go to bed one of the first things we did when the producers came on was to make it seem like there were two story days happening. So we did some small restructuring, changed yeah. some pace things in there. And then, uh, you know, then that comes down significantly in running time. You know, suddenly the section that was, you know, his pig wasn't kidnapped until, you know, I think 25, 30 minutes in this early iterations was now happening, you know, like 15 minutes in, give or take. So um, I, I'm trying to tiptoe around this film and it's like, it's like there's a thing you said about it like not being like John Wick, and again, I don't think this gives away too much. But one of my initial... I'm, I'm down to I'm down to the spoilers too. If you want to, yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll chuck some in at the end just for those people who want to. But like, I found the third act probably has more in common with something like Ratatouille than it does with uh, John Wick and the kind of the 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 way that the story progresses. And like, it's yeah. it's and you mentioned like obviously there being a much longer cut and scenes running longer one scene that really stood out to me and i think it's like perfect the way it ends is uh, a mirror in the mirror 
and that kind of like mm. pep talk he's giving to himself was that yeah. was there a lot of that i imagine there would have, there would have probably been a, a lot of that scene uh there was um <laughs> one there, there, there's there was a fair more amount um and what's fun about that scene is that like that's actually um uh, that contains an like an alex screw up where he i think he decided to reset in the middle of the take <laughs> and then we it was like wait that seems like a mirror like just talking to himself and then you know breaking down then talking to himself again yeah. that's actually alex i think like getting out of character and getting, getting back into character <laughs> um but uh there was one of the wonderful things I, I think working with these two actors was how much um alex really was inspired by nick yeah. and when it, it's after working on two cage films and seeing alex's footage you know it's really interesting to then see alex you know almost like a protege yeah. of, of cage in a sort. you know, he's making those kind of, he's making a lot of these decisions and trying things out that, you know, Nick Cage did, you know, 20 years ago, you know, with these shifts in energy and bursts and momentum and rhythm changes, but, you know, and, and it was, it was really exciting and really cool to see that. Um, so yeah, certainly there would be takes where you have a lot of variation um, where, you know, he would go really big and then small and then Michael and him would try and find it together. Um, which is uh, was different because in most of the cases that the other two movies that worked with Nick, you can have a lot of Nick variation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Nick would tr- Nick would try out different energy reads. You know, with Richard or with Panos, and this is a movie that Nick very rarely shifted from the tone of the performance he was giving on take one. Yeah. Like him and Michael had worked something out. They worked out a backstory for this character and worked out a, a cadence for this performance that very rarely shifted. And and when it does, it's surprising and shocking, and it, it's almost like a like a dormant volcano. You know, it's like this, you get like little earthquakes, but nothing on the exterior kind of changes. Maybe you get like a, a really intense flicker or stare, you know, exuding screen charisma, and then he goes from this you know silent hulking type to this flash of energy in a split second, and then he's back down. He's back into his contained self, back into this you know, super dense black hole. Well, one of the things I found, like especially watching them in quite close succession with Mandy and Pig, is obviously they both have they both utilise the kind of um, like almost like free act thing of like the title cards, and like they also both centre around like this kind of key scene in the middle that kind of like is like a, a switch in it. Do you know what I mean? Like where and, and in in Pig, it is that moment where the, um, him and Amir go to the restaurant, uh, a kind of like the hot shit restaurant in the middle of portland and yeah it's <laughs> you get like like you're saying like you don't get anything big and brash from cage in this but you somewhat get this kind of like very measured and considered like visceral takedown of this restaurateur that is just like a beautiful like centerpiece to this film and it's kind of it's, it's so great to like i don't know speak to you obviously having worked on something that's got this burst of anger and energy and violence to, to this film is very like, da, da, yeah, like down. But again, I, I imagine this, like there was probably so much more of that as well. Right. Like, uh, honestly, not a lot. Yeah. Um, th- that scene in particular um, stayed pretty close. We yeah. ended up losing a little bit, um, but 
I mean, even from a script point of view, when I was, when I, my agent sent me the script and he was like, I don't know if this thing is for you. And this is before I knew Nick wasn't even involved. I, I had a suspicion, like looking at the lookbook, I was like, there's a lot of like Rob, or, there's a lot of um, Joe photos in this lookbook. I had a suspicion <laughs> that they're thinking about Cage for this. Um, but uh, it was at that point when I was reading the script, I was like, I'm 100% in. Like this, it, it was my favorite scene in the script. It was my favorite, to this day, my favorite scene in the movie. Because like you said, it's that crucial midpoint of the film where um, Nick, dis- Rob decides to rely on somebody else. Like, mm-hmm. Rob decides to rely on Amir to help him at this point. And he, he would have not been able to go into you or to see to the chef and talk this guy out without his help. Um but you also have this, this screen charisma, this power kind of exuding off Rob in the scene. And he's doing so much by restraint, by control, by holding things back. And the, uh, that mo- like the, uh, those last few lines of the scene in particular where Rob stares down the chef and these, yeah pleading with he's pleading with him but also intimidating him but also kind of shaking him down he's doing all these things at once you know begging this guy but also trying to strong arm him into like by in by humiliating him in his own restaurant Mm -hmm. saying like you're a like you know saying more or less you're a sellout you sold your soul none of this matters you know hitting him with this wave of nihilism but there's only one thing that matters it's taken from me where is it Mm -hmm. you know this is something that matters. None of this matters. And Cage just nailed that take again and again and again and again by just the amount of restraint and control over his physical performance was extraordinary. Like, yeah. I, I think I mentioned this earlier. I, I've worked with a lot of actors. Nick is one of the only actors that, one of the only actors I've worked with that just feels gifted, that feels like there's something else at work that uh, you can't train, that you can't practice that there's something else there yeah, and think, he and that that scene completely showcases it yeah like have you have you ever gotten from an actor like a kind of like has an actor ever reached out to you and said like hey thanks you made me like do you know what I mean like not that they would look bad in the film anyway, <laughs> but like hey you made me look really good in the edit of that or do you know what I mean you, yeah you managed yeah, to they, find yeah they have um <laughs> uh, I, I have um Elijah's done that with my experiences in with Spectre, with Cooties and, and stuff. Um, Karen, who I did, uh, Karen Gillen, who I did parties just beginning with, um, she's been very generous about her praise. Um, and uh, uh, Milana from Werewolves Within just reached out um, and said a lot of nice things. Um, and uh, and Cage, Cage actually, Cage and I don't have uh, you know, a personal relationship, yeah, yeah. Um, but we are we definitely know of each other <laughs> and very appreciative of one another. Um, we were at a, uh, an event for uh color space for a, a Legion M or some kind of a beyond fest premiere or something like that yeah. in at the, this theater in Los Angeles. And they were doing a Q and a with uh, Richard and cage and Pat and Oswald. And uh, this was like right in the middle of like we're, we're editing pig and we're editing pig in my apartment, which is like a 10 minute walk from the Vista. <laughs> and so like, Michael and one of our producers, Vanessa, you know, come to the, the Colorado space screen with me. And then I think you know, patent had like mentioned pig or mentioned something at one point. And Nick just has the microphone. He's like, yeah, I just want to give a shout out to my editor, Brett Hoffman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing pig with Reg right now. And I think he did a, a bang up job on color. And Amazing. there was a, you know, a public screen that he, they were doing a live webcam on and he, he 
totally went out of his way to do that. And was for that acknowledgement uh, was extremely generous. Um, and I, uh, I hold that memory very close to my heart. Amazing. So yeah, with pig, there's, um, I don't know, like one of the, I think the thing I find fascinating about it and it is it, it acts almost like a, there's like a meta narrative to the film that mm -hmm. about Nick Cage himself of this kind of like, especially, I don't know if I'm kind of looking for this for somebody who's done a podcast looking at every Nick Cage film, but like the story of, um, yeah, Rob is very much similar to an extent of Cage of this thing of like, there was a period of Nick Cage's career in somewhat that he was out in the wild that like, do you know what I mean? There was a time when the name Nick Cage meant something. Do you know what I mean? Like summer 97, it's Con Air and Face Off. And then the 2010s, it's like became that meme, that kind of guy that people, I don't know, like you get in sizzle reels, like Nick Cage loses his shit and he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's somehow like a punchline to a joke. <laughs> and, and I just find it fascinating that, there's a film about a truffle hunter looking for their pig that seems like it's more of a, a meta conversation about Nick Cage and his career somewhat <laughs> than possibly a film that is an actual meta film. Obviously, like, nobody's seen it yet, but, like, he's, he's in a film coming out next year that he plays himself. Way, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like that thing of, like, but, yeah, like, do you kind of pick up on, like, maybe not that fit, but, like, the kind of, like the themes of a film, are you kind of finding that in the edit or are you kind of like, yeah, is it, like, do you find the film in the edit or is it kind of a lot of them, the directors know what they want from the off? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, where to start with that? <laughs> uh, well, uh, that's an interesting point about the, the meta narrative in, in terms of like you know, Rob, the truffle hunter or the famous restaurant or who's now a recluse in the woods. You know, how do you compare that with Cage's career? Can you make a comparison to Cage's career? And I'm going to kind of toss that back out to the jury. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I uh, that, that that's I, possibly I, my reading of it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I I love that kind of film analysis. Um, on, on a day to day basis, we don't think a whole lot about that yeah. in the day to day process of editing the movie. We certainly talk about the themes. We certainly talk about the things we want to convey with the central ideas um, that you want to express with the movie, um, because you have to be very, especially you have to be a storyteller first and foremost. I mean, yes, you're selecting material, you're selecting takes, but you have to be a storyteller. And I am of the opinion that the editor has to be as gifted in story as much as the screenwriter. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for any you know burgeoning editors listening, I would say instead of reading a lot of technical books about the avid um, and about types of cuts, uh, read screenwriting books, just read books on story, read books on character, read books on transformation and arcs. That's going to give you nine times out of 10 more of a clear head when you reach a dilemma in the, in the film editing process about what to include versus what not to include. So we talk about that stuff all the time, yeah. you know, on, on pig, um, a clear example on pig um, would be, the scene before you were to see the scene before he goes into the restaurant, there's a scene where he goes to a house yeah. and, and he goes to the house and he sits with a little boy that he meets as there. And this particular scene was on the chopping block for a little bit of time. And, you know, we, the creative team, we weren't really sure what to do with it. 
And at the end of the day, the reason it was kept, or at least my argument for keeping the scene, was because it was one of the more foundational points of Rob's arc. And, and that'll that'll make sense, you know, once you have a full context of the movie. And you know, if we can get into spoilers, I can talk more about it. But <laughs> you you need that you need that scene to understand why this character, what he's really up against. Yeah. What he's really up against. Like you have the entire you know journey into going to re- recover the pig in Portland is an exterior facade for what's really going on. Yeah. Like, yes, he wants his pig back, but like what the character needs versus what what the character what the character needs versus what the character wants are two different things. The, the, the going in for the pig is just kind of that shadow shadow puppets. It's not what the movie's really about. Mm-hmm. That scene where he goes to that house and he says to that kid. That's the first genesis of him working out the conflict that really matters. Mm-hmm. Why the movie. Hopefully, if you like it, actually has emotional resonance is because of that interior character story and yeah. that what Rob is really going through. Um, and that is one of those scenes that, you know, we look at from like a story theory and we're like, this is what the story, this is what the scene does. Yeah. It may, you think like it's a three minute scene, not a lot of happens in the scene um, from like, you know, a small point of view, but you look at that scene on like a greater structural thing and like what it represents on Rob's journey. I was arguing, I think it's extremely important because it's his first step. It's his first step to completing this arc. So we definitely talk about those kind of, you know, thematic decisions and story through lines. But in terms of, I think, leaving how to interpret a movie in terms of its, you know, place in the world or, you know, it's, it's meta narrative or, or whatever like that. I think that, it's impossible to predict that. We kind of leave that well, to yeah, the that, audience. That's left up to the nerds like me. <laughs> yeah. Well, well like, shall, shall we get into some uh, little bit of spoiler territory? So anyone who's listening... If you haven't seen the film duck out now um because there's yeah like ha, like the kind of the that one of the moments that really really like i think is great in this is there's a moment towards the end which well, if if this were john wick with a pig it would be getting getting the guns ready boom 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 getting getting all the stuff ready and you get instead we get this beautiful montage of cage and alex making dinner together which is like and beautifully like shot like wonderfully edited i I love like the kind of like you get the mirroring of cage doing something and then you get like a mit like yeah alex doing something like that like i think yeah i think that's beautiful and like Again, was stuff like that was that found within it? Because you obviously you said like the original cut of this was like three hours long. Was a lot, a lot of uh, work. but no, I mean that. Uh, I mean we certainly you work with that material. You look for those kind of things, yeah. and so in a way, is it made? I suppose because a lot of it's you know a cool shop effect. A lot of it's you know looking at you know two juxtaposing juxtaposing two shots that you know and you infer a narrative or infer a meaning out of that um and a lot of it's like you said non-verbal so yes it requires a lot of us in the editing to make sure that story is told when you don't have the you know a dialogue doing that you know all the subtext has to be in, in body motion and camera and sound and music you know that entire end scene you know from the point they agree to team up and they go to the bakery to the point where you know darius tells him the truth that's all that's all non-verbal it's not, not a word is said um, and all that is body language and performance and acting and yeah editing um, but no, none of that was really found in a typical sense, um, because the movie always knew what it was going to be. Yeah. Um, this is a film. Sometimes you get into a film where you do a lot of restructuring, you know, you move scenes around, you 
you know, your last scene is your first scene. And I've done, I've done those kind of movies. They can be a lot of fun. And sometimes they are, they don't work out all that well. Sometimes they turn out great. Um, this was a movie that very little changed in terms of its structure, in terms of its overall placement of scenes. Um, we changed a little bit at the beginning, yes, but this was always a film that was about friendship. It's about lost. It's about friendship. It's not, this is, I have no idea why people are thinking this is a revenge movie. <laughs> like there is, there is absolutely no revenge in this film at all. Yeah. Like it is um, like, no one has like, yes, someone has taken his pig, but like Nick isn't chasing down, you know, uh, mobsters or people in the film world with weapons to, you know, avenge his pig. It's, um, <laughs> He's trying to, he's trying to find the one thing that gives him happiness in the world because mm-hmm. this is a story about a man that has chosen to run away from society because he was broken yeah. and you learn why he was broken throughout the course of the movie. And so the entire movie in, in the story hinges on this question of can a broken man face loss and begin to rebuild himself and it, facing the loss is it, uh, yes, his pig was stolen. But he's in the woods because Lori died. He's in the woods because his wife died. You know, the, the, him facing the trauma is facing the fact that his wife is dead and, and she's never coming back. And the, the pig being taken was just a catalyst for all of this. Mm-hmm. He, he, the true thing, him being able to kind of come back in society, being able to trust people again and take that initial step to entrust Amir, someone that he was very reluctant to have any relationship with, uh, forced to have a relationship at the beginning of the movie, he appreciates at the end as a, as a true friend. And the, in, the movie hinges on that. Like yeah. The movie, all those elements there have to hinge on him entrusting this character that begins to see him as kind of like a role model, kind of like this mentor figure. And have this mutual appreciation for one another by the very end where, you know, Nick used to think he was some kind of spoiled rich kid. And then he discovers why he is the way he is. And then Amir, you know, begins to appreciate why this guy was out in the, why this weird guy was out in the woods when he learns about Lori and he learns about his, his past and, you know, what he chose to run away from because he was so hurt. Like that is why the movie has power in my opinion is, is these and that was always in the script. I mean, yeah. Michael and Vanessa really wrote a, a really beautiful, really touching movie that you know, is, I think, going to surprise a lot of people mm-hmm. um, yeah. because it, it couldn't be farther from bacon or, <laughs> or all that stuff. <laughs> and I'm, I, as much as I'm relishing, I'm like, you know, people like discovering this. I, I can't wait for, you know, a point, hopefully in a few years down the line where all those comparisons are completely forgotten. Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, well, I've kind of like figured it out whilst like especially look at the films you've edited of cages you've somewhat like been involved in a nick cage trilogy of like man man of the woods cage where it's oh like, my God. Yeah. like yeah, <laughs> mandy's like kind of living out there in in the middle of nowhere you've got uh color out of space obviously the gardener family live out in the middle of this woods and then pig like it's a kind of that's a great little that's a great little trilogy to to to, to be a part of right <laughs> Oh my God, someone might write a paper about it one day. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess you're right, yeah. I mean, my uh, fiance and I, she was joking the other day um, about how much you could actually like make a comparison between Mandy and Pig in terms of just like yeah. on paper, you know, like the, the loose archetypes that you find in that movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, loner man out in the woods, you know, living with, you know, a, a 
something that he is affectionate with. And then she's a rec- they're both a recluse from society. And then one day, you know, said object is taken away from him. Yeah. And so he makes the grudging decision to go back and re-engage with his old identity about who he was. Yeah. Okay. I, I can see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, yeah. And they're, they're, they're both explorations of, of grief as well. Yeah. And that, that's kind of the key, the heart of, 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 of all of it. Um, well, yeah, like obviously people are listening, like if you're in the US and you li- you've listened this far, go out and see Pig. Like it's, it's fantastic. I could, I could talk about it all day, but, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm ca- um, cautious of taking up your time, Brett. Thank you so much for coming and getting caged in with me. It's been, it's been an absolute blast. I, there's so many other things I had down on my notes. I'd love to talk to you, but like we'd end up talking for hours and not no fun for anyone. <laughs> it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And there we have it, guys. That was my conversation with Brett Buckman, all about Mandy, Color Out of Space, and Pig. It was a great conversation, right? There was some amazing, as I said in the intro, there's some things I'd never heard about. I never, I never knew there was more Johan Johansson music for Mandy. Let's hope that one day we get to see, or that gets to see the light of day. I'm sure, I'm sure you're like me. You would love, love, love to hear it. Um, as I mentioned in the intro as well, um, other episodes to check out if you enjoyed this one, if you're new to the podcast. I'd really recommend that one with Daniel Noah. Really recommend uh, the conversation with Brian Taylor, director of Mum and Dad and Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, as well as my interview with Ken Sanzel. Yeah, you really get to um, see how lovely Cage is, as well as Todd Farmer, as well, the uh, writer of Drive Angry and Marco Kyris, Nicholas Cage's stand-in from 1994 to 2005. That's that's the level of guests I interview on this podcast. If you weren't already aware, this is the premium Nicholas Cage podcast. I'm going to be arrogant and say that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm very proud of what I'm doing here. And yeah, I'm, I can assure you, there are some great people lined up to speak to in the future as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please, 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 please rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. If you'd like to get in touch, please do so on all the social media. So that is Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and letterbox all at caged in pod or you can always drop me an email at caged in pod at gmail.com so as always i have been petrus patsilvis i have been caged in until next time keep it cagey and i'll see you then This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad free and made possible by listeners like you. 
please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.